There's also a weird thing happening where, like, a lot of the people who are covering, you know, the news and sort of printing, like, the historical record of record are just, like, random people with Gmail accounts who can't afford dental care. Welcome to You're Wrong About, the podcast where we trace the figures of history as they should have been drawn in the first place. (gasps) Boom. That's so beautiful. It's a topical metaphor. It's huge. That's so great. I've never been proud of one before. The spirit of Tanya blessed you with true creativity. <laughs> she's around us. She flows through us. Yes, she's the Dib or something. <laughs> <laughs> I am Michael Hobbs. I'm a reporter for the Huffington Post. I'm Sarah Marshall. I'm working on a book about the satanic panic. And we are on Patreon at patreon.com slash you're wrong about. Taking donations to support our work, much as Tanya Harding once did. And today we are doing part two of our epic Tanya and Nancy extravaganza. Is it a capade? Is it a Tanya and Nancy capade? You know, like the ice capades. What makes a capade? Palooza. Tanya and Nancy Palooza. Yes. Yeah, there it is. (laughs) It was the 90s after all. Everything was a palooza. (laughs) And so last week we talked about the history of Nancy and Tanya, where they were up until the moment of the famous attack. So Mm -hmm. today we're going to talk about the attack itself and the aftermath, and I suppose all of the debates around the attack afterwards of Mm -hmm. who knew what, when, Mm -hmm. all this kind of CSI stuff. This is the Portland Watergate. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, where should we we pick up? So, it's January 6th, 1994, at the Cobo Arena in Detroit, Michigan. Mm -hmm. And the ladies of the National Figure Skating Championship are having their daytime practice. Mm -hmm. And one thing that we talked about in the last episode is like how weird it is that Tanya Harding is like, you know, one of the top five best in America at the sport that she competes in and is still working at Spud King, opening up and making coffee in the mornings. Yes. One of the other interesting things is that here we are, it's this practice session for like the elite athletes of the world. Mm -hmm. Like two of these women are going to the Olympics. We don't know which two, but we know that two of them are. Mm -hmm. And there is no security. Oh, It's a time when the public can come and maybe they can't afford to buy tickets for that night, but they can come and watch the skaters and try and get autographs from them. Wow. Can you imagine? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's also weird for women to... When there's like issues of stalkers. Uh Yes. And Nancy Kerrigan has already received a letter from a Canadian fan that was, to quote her mother, Brenda Kerrigan, smutty. (laughs) It's very weird. And just any John Q driveway can be there Mm -hmm. and can go watch Nancy Kerrigan, which is how the man who assaults Nancy Kerrigan gets into the building. So he just walks in. Yeah. He just wanders in. Just like going into Banana Republic. You just walk in with your backpack on. No big deal. Yeah. And so what happens is he waits for Nancy Kerrigan to leave the ice and a Pittsburgh Post-Gazette reporter Mm -hmm. who is waiting in an area that's off limits to the press, but no one cares about that either, Mm -hmm. goes up to Nancy Kerrigan to ask her a question after Nancy Kerrigan finishes her practice skate. She walks off the ice and puts on her skate guards and starts talking to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette reporter. And then suddenly this man rushes in from behind them and clubs Nancy, Okay, aims for her knee and hits her lower thigh on her right leg, which is the leg that she lands, jumps on. So mm-hmm. that's integral to her skating, which is obvious to the people who begin speculating about this. And then he... <laughs> 
runs away and he runs toward these doors that turn out to be locked and turn out to be made of plexiglass. And so he uses his head as a blunt instrument and bursts out through them. Wait, he breaks the doors? Yeah, with his head. Oh, wow. Yes. And... Do you know what weapon was actually used on Nancy Kerrigan? I always thought it was a club. What kind of club? Oof. Because, like, what's a club when it's at home? (laughs) Good question. I don't know. Right? The only kind of club I can name is a billy club, and that doesn't sound right. No, that is it. It's a collapsible police baton. Oh, like the one Jennifer Lopez had in Out of Sight. Yeah. And he runs out of the building and he hurls it away and it lands under a car. Okay. Every element of this crime and its execution is hilarious. Yeah, it sounds like they didn't do like a Gantt chart of like this needs to happen and then that and then that. It doesn't seem like they planned it out very well. What's a Gantt chart? It's a project management tool of like who needs to do what and when you know so many terrifying things (laughs) (laughs) this was not a mckinsey organized attack no this is like these guys have between them seen goodfellas too many times (laughs) it's like every element of this they were making up as they went along yeah and so then he like misses his getaway car and so the getaway driver has to like drive toward him and be like hello get in it's like an uber it's like are you jeff yes i'm jeff hello yeah Yes. And then they get away. Uh-huh. And there is an ABC cameraman who is following Nancy. She's leaving the rink. And so ABC is there. So that's how we get the infamous Why Me footage. Yeah. And, and describe the infamous footage, Oof. if you will. I mean, I can barely remember it, but she's crying. The camera is close to her face. She's sort of clutching her leg and she's kind of calling out why me why me she's actually not saying why me i know this is the opening of your essay so i didn't want to ruin it but yes i know that that's not actually such a sport (laughs) she just says why 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 she says why 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 she's like holding her knee and then her dad comes and picks her up and carries her away and she just like reminds me of just the way it feels when you're a kid and you hurt yourself and your dad picks you up and carries you away because someone says like you know they're asking her what it was she's like i don't know some hard hard black stick something really really hard you know and her voice just sort of like jumps registers into crying and she's just like bawling you know she's just like a tired kid with a skin knee at the end of the day and it's like it's amazing because nancy kerrigan was always known for her stoic elegance. Right. So Nancy is examined and it's determined that she can't skate. Mm-hmm. The baton hit above the knee. Mm-hmm. And later on, the guy who carried out the assault says he knew he hadn't broken her kneecap, which is what he was trying to do because he didn't hear a popping sound. He misses the kneecap, but she's still injured enough and injured enough in the knee area that she can't compete that night. She doesn't have the kind of control that she needs to make or land jumps. She doesn't have a full range of flexibility, Mm -hmm. but because she has won a medal at a previous world championships that means that she can be given a bye to compete at the olympics which means that she doesn't have to qualify at nationals right the usfsa is like we're gonna send nancy because we trust her right and also because michelle kwan was the second place finisher and she's 13 (laughs) 
Jesus. Okay. And so after Nancy is injured, Tanya skates better than she has in, in arguably years. Ooh. She skates a great program. She doesn't have the triple axel, mm-hmm. but she has beautiful triple jumps. So she's like the shit. She's at the top of her game. Yeah. She skates the skate of her life and she wins the national championship. So Nancy gets attacked. Tanya does the best skating of her life two days later. Yeah. Let me add also that Tanya lost a little bit off of her score for her costume when she won nationals, even as she won. What? Because it was considered, to quote from the book written by two Oregonian journalists, Trampy. Look up a picture. This would be 1994 nationals, Tanya Harding? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, what? It's fine. <laughs> what do you see? It's purple. It's got like gold glitter on it. And it's doing that thing that they always do in figure skating where it looks really low cut. Like it looks yeah. like it's going like all the way down to like between her boobs. But there's that weird flesh colored fabric. Yeah. Extremely thick. Yeah. She's wearing like a fucking turtleneck. But like a V of the turtleneck is the same color as her skin. So from like 80 feet away... It looks like it's really low cut. But the fact is, if you're anywhere within, like, throwing distance of her, you can tell that it's flesh colored. So you're not actually seeing any of her body. You also get the sense that, like, when she wore stuff like this, this was Tanya being like, this is, I'm being feminine. I'm doing the thing you said. And they're like, no, we meant some other undefinable thing. This is terrible and wrong. And she was like, what? But I spent all my money on this costume. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) It's even got glitter on the, like, flesh-colored front part. You gotta have glitter. So it's not even like anyone is confused as to whether she's showing her boobs. I can tell you when glitter took off in American figure skating. (laughs) Linda Fratiani, 1980, Olympic competitor, won the silver. She was the one who started wearing sequins on her leotards as kind of a trademark thing. And again, in an, in another way that the sport has been shaped by broadcast, sequins look really good on TV because they catch the light and spangle. Yeah. So anyway, Tanya loses points for costume. And she says rather guilelessly, quote, it won't be a complete title without being able to go against Nancy. Okay. Which to me is not the kind of thing that you would say if you think you are suspected of something. Yeah. Right? Like you have to be either like a cartoon villain yeah. who knows that you're suspected Or like a normal person who is kind of oblivious. Right. And you can see how all of these little not that consequential details can get twisted later. Mm -hmm. Of like, isn't it a little suspicious that she skated so well after Nancy was attacked? I mean, you can just see how the magnifying glass is going to illuminate all of these things differently. Yeah. You know, you can be psyched out by your competitor's performance. And Nancy was the one who she was always pitted against. So... Being able to compete without being seen in comparison with Nancy, I can imagine, would be a huge relief. Hmm. And so she she wins the title, and her, quote, on-again, off-again husband, Jeff, has flown in to be with her on the day. Mm-hmm. Jeff watches her win the title, and then mm-hmm. after she wins, they are approached by Detective Dennis Richardson of the Detroit Police. Oh, So okay. within two days, okay. they are being questioned. Mm-hmm. So the Detroit Police bring Jeff in and question him jointly with the FBI. Okay. And an FBI agent named Dan Sobolewski asked if his wife had a bodyguard service. 
And Jeff says, yes, and I happen to have a card for World Bodyguard Services, which is run by Sean Eckhart. Oh. Mm-hmm. Is that name familiar to you? Vaguely. In like a weird, like, Cato Kalen, deep in the depths <laughs> of my brain type of way. Yeah. It's so, isn't it weird how like these scandals happened so kind of rotely in America in the 90s that there were sort of standard roles, like how in yeah. a Shakespeare comedies, there's always like the confused messenger. Right. <laughs> in these, there's like a supporting cast member who just is like vaguely funny in every way. It's like the best friend in every romantic comedy. Yeah. So Jeff happens to have business cards for his friend Sean Eckhart's bodyguard company mm-hmm. because he brought them to Detroit at Sean's request because Sean has orchestrated the assault on Nancy Kerrigan based on the promise of a relatively small amount of money, mm. which will then turn into an increased need for bodyguards in the figure skating world, oh. which means that after Jeff hands out his business cards at nationals, he will be flooded with offers and he will make tens of thousands of dollars. Wait, what? It's like a vertical integration scheme. It's like you're increasing <laughs> the demand for your product artificially yeah. and then you're supplying it. Yes. That's the plan. Yeah, that's the plan. The plan is for a couple of losers to make a relatively small amount of money. How much of this does Jeff know? Like, does Sean come to Jeff with the idea or does Jeff come to Sean with the idea? So let's talk about the beginnings of this plot. Okay. Okay, I want to read to you also (laughs) a passage from Fire on Ice, the book by the Oregonian journalist about the attempts to find the man who assaulted Nancy Kerrigan and then burst out through the locked plexiglass doors Mm. to escape and who was caught momentarily on the security camera footage. Oh. Because both the footage of Nancy Kerrigan being assaulted and then the security camera footage of him escaping were broadcast nationally. It was huge news. Nancy was on the cover of Newsweek. It was just immediately a topic of deep fixation. And after the assault, the National Figure Skating Championships gave out 250 new sets of press credentials because suddenly they had become the focus of a lot more media attention because there had been an assault there. Yeah. It's similar to me to the fact that when JonBenet Ramsey was murdered, initially this did not inspire much press attention, but then... When the media caught wind of the fact that there was this footage of her competing in these child beauty pageants, right? then it suddenly became a big story because it was, like, weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right? Like, there's a lot that we're not really, that the media was not particularly interested in, didn't think that Americans would be interested in. Right. Unless it was, like... I don't know, like extra horrible. Yeah, I think we like crimes that take place within worlds. That's true. A murder that takes place in like the tattooing community or whatever. It's just a nice little entry point. But unfortunately, we keep using the same fucking entry point, which is always a murder. Well, and also, unfortunately, we keep wanting our real life crimes to mimic our fictional crimes. Yeah. We get really excited when a real life crime feels like a fictional crime. Right. Because that's what we're familiar with and what we find narratively satisfying. And this one kind of does. I mean, to be fair, like, it's yeah. pretty incredible that this happened. Yeah, and how come? Like, what what feels so incredible about it? Because it's an assassination 
But it's not an assassination of a life. It's an assassination of an athletic ability, which is very Ooh. interesting. And also very Agatha Christie-like, to be yeah. honest. It's very like the mirror cracked or something. Yeah. And then it also immediately points to other figure skaters because this clearly isn't a random attack. And it's not like they stole her money or wanted to kill her because she's in a love triangle. It's like they wanted to remove her athletic ability. And the only mm. people that benefit from that are other figure skaters, right? Are mm-hmm. the rankings two through everybody else that could get into the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And so I'm imagining that like immediately the spotlight goes to all of the other figure skaters because no one else benefits from this. Mm-hmm. And immediately people start looking at Tanya. Yeah, you would. And because she's been always been pitted as Nancy's rival and like yeah. her natural enemy, the choker to her Batman. Sure. So of course, Tanya is the first person who people suspect and start mm-hmm. making jokes about having done it. Right. And she and Jeff start getting looked at by the police within 48 hours. Right. Okay, so let me read you this passage from the book by the Oregonian journalists about the attempt to identify the man who assaulted Nancy Kerrigan and whose image is captured very briefly and very blurrily mm-hmm. on the security camera footage. Mm-hmm. Witnesses gave detectives the description of a powerfully built man, but their accounts varied wildly. Four said he was white. Two said the thug was a light-skinned black. Ooh. Ooh. The police eventually issued two composite drawings of their suspect. When reporters saw them, they laughed. One drawing looked like a square-jawed white man. One drawing looked like a delicate, oval-faced black woman. <laughs> So we've narrowed it down. (laughs) Never mind, police indicated. Technology would come to the rescue. Through special, quote, space-age techniques, video taken right after the attack would provide a clear picture of the assailant. (laughs) Computers would enhance the tiny, blurred image of the man fleeing from the downed skater. For days, the Detroit police talked about this miracle of science. But when it was finally done, the result looked only vaguely human. Reporters dubbed it the Shroud of Detroit. Police, however, declared that their suspect was conclusively white and had long hair. The eventual confessed assailant fit neither of these specifics. (laughs) It's so perfect that we've got an angle of, like, technology will fix this somehow. Computers. I guess this is the middle of a period where every movie has that scene where they're like, zoom in, enhance on like mm-hmm. security camera footage and then it comes up perfectly. They're like, I need the license plate of that car 60 feet away. Yeah. Boop, 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 enhance. And then it's like, oh, seven, one, two, three. Like, yeah. I just think cops watch movies and they believe them like everybody else. They watch Blade Runner and they believe it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, the person who assaulted Nancy Kerrigan is either a delicate, oval-faced black woman or a Mm -hmm. heavyset white man with long hair. So it's either Halle Berry or Jack Black. (laughs) But what? the, the assailant wasn't wearing a mask? Apparently not. That's a weird choice. All of the choices were weird. That seems like super basic. I feel like this whole thing was orchestrated and carried out by a bunch of guys who were all simultaneously pretending to know what they were doing (laughs) and all thinking, boy, I hope none of these other guys figure out I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Wow. It's like an online magazine. (laughs) Or a podcast. I love this shit. I am like so fascinated by conspiracy theories. And I feel like the greatest debunking of Baroque international conspiracy theories is actual conspiracies where it's Mm -hmm. like always just like a bunch of ding-dongs and nobody knows what they're doing and it's like super obvious within 15 minutes. Okay, so in December of 1993, Tanya Harding goes to the NHK Trophy in Japan Mm -hmm. and 
she's going to qualify for nationals that year, no matter where she places in this event. Okay. But she is still really unhappy that she places seventh and feels like she wasn't judged fairly. Okay. And, you know, she has a point because one of the things she notes is that two of the other skaters competing, Surya Bonali, who's French, and Chen Lu, who's from China, fell in their programs but get third and fourth place. Oh. And she gets seventh and she doesn't fall and she skates a clean program. Oh, for fuck's sake. And she openly complains about this to the press. She started getting a reputation as like Mm -hmm. not being unfailingly polite and and positive and Disney princess like all the time, which like, how dare she? Right. And so Tanya calls Jeff from Japan and says she feels like she was cheated. Mm -hmm. And... She comes back to Portland, according to Jeff, still feeling frustrated about Mm -hmm. being held down. And so Jeff is venting about this when he is talking to his friend, Sean Eckhart, Mm -hmm. who is the proprietor of World Bodyguard Services. How does Jeff know him? They have been friends since grade school. Ah, okay. So Jeff is complaining to Sean, and he's complaining that you know, Nancy Kerrigan is already being propped up as the one who's going to win the nationals and Jack is already giving Tanya lower scores than she deserves. And probably at nationals, Nancy Kerrigan is going to win anyway. And it mm. doesn't matter how Tanya skates. And according to Jeff, his his old friend, Sean, listens to him say all this and says, well, what if Nancy got a threat and couldn't compete? Ooh. Tanya has previously received a death threat when she was skating in a competition and someone called in and said that if Harding skated, she would get a bullet in the back. Mm-hmm. And it pretty soon after that was rumored in the figure skating community that she had orchestrated a death threat so that she wouldn't have to skate at this event as a, as a qualifying thing because she was given a pass and okay. automatically qualified. So Jeff claims that Sean suggests some kind of threat. Mm -hmm. And Jeff is like, yes, like, that's the ticket that happened with Tanya. Nancy wouldn't have to skate. Mm -hmm. And then Tanya could get the score she deserved. According to Jeff, Sean is the first one who suggests physical violence. Okay. Do you want to know what he first suggests that they do? Oh, yeah. Okay. This suggests to me that Sean Eckhart has been watching horror movies and specifically Pet Cemetery. Okay. He suggests that they slice her Achilles tendon. Ooh. Yeah. And then Jeff is like, well, you know, actually, <laughs> if you break one of her knees or one of her legs, if you hurt her right leg somehow, then she won't be able to land her jumps. So huh. let's do that. I mean, it's also nicer. Yeah. And it's like way less difficult to do. So some yeah. background on Sean Eckhart. He's, I believe, 26 at the time. He, after the story breaks, is made fun of in every media account of this for being fat and is just this very unfortunate kind of buffoon figure who mm-hmm. apparently just lied to everybody who he talked to about basically his entire life. He claimed to have years of counterterrorism and espionage work and that he had worked in the Middle East and I want to say in Central America and that he had done all this sort of like cloak and dagger or like CIA type stuff. It's also amazing whenever you find these people that are pilloried in the press for their weight There's always a thousand things that are so much worse about them than their weight. Right. It's like, oh, he was a larger guy. And like, oh, yeah, there's this thing about like lying about his entire life and like planning to like completely ruin someone's entire career. But anyway, he's a big dude. So like, obviously, he's not worth anything. Yes, it it says a lot about who we were at the time and continue to be as a country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Sean and Jeff, you know, it seems like kind of cook up this idea together. 
And what Jeff later says is that Sean doesn't want to tell Tanya about this idea until after they've carried about. But Jeff says, no, we should tell her. If we don't, it'll be like too much of a shock to her. Oh, and it might like affect her skating. Yeah, which is a, is a pragmatic thing to think. Okay. So what Jeff later tells the FBI is that he talks this all over with Sean while Tanya is still in Japan. Mm-hmm. And then she comes home and is still frustrated about her scores And he tells her, well, Sean and I have this idea that we've been talking about. What if Nancy couldn't skate at nationals and you were able to qualify and to win and win your title back? Wouldn't that be great? And what he says is that Tanya agrees with this. Okay. And agrees that, you know, he should keep working on it. Like, let's keep workshopping that. Well, she's not agreeing to an active role in it, which is important to know. She's like, okay, keep, you know, sure. That makes sense. That's what he's saying, she said. So it's interesting to me that even in Jeff's version, Tanya is not really an active participant. What is Tanya's version of this, of her advanced knowledge? Tanya's version is that she had no knowledge until after the fact. She had no idea that Jeff was planning this. She had no idea that he was connected to it until they started being questioned by the police after she won. So Jeff starts planning with Sean. Mm -hmm. Sean contacts a friend of his named Derek Smith, who lives in Phoenix. And to quote Fire on Ice, the two shared a love for the world of spies, espionage, and survivalism. They even talked about starting a survivalist school where Eckhart could teach bodyguard work. Oh, my God. This, like, (laughs) random dude who has no experience in doing anything. Like, yeah, I'll train you on how to be a bodyguard. I've seen that movie twice. (laughs) And Derek Smith is, like, the same kind of guy. He's, like, a random dude living in Phoenix. Who mm-hmm. likes martial arts stuff. I'm just imagining that kid in the Star Wars video, right? Who's like playing with like a stick in his garage. Mm-hmm. That's the level of expertise that I'm yeah. projecting onto these dudes. And so Derek Smith calls his nephew Shane Stant, who's a bodybuilder, who also is from Oregon, but lives in Phoenix at the time. And quote, one neighbor described Stant as a big dude with scars on his head from beatings as a child. Mm-hmm. Smith, the neighbor said, is just different. He's not very sociable. He'd just walk by you and not say anything. Mm. So they're just like small town martial arts enthusiasts. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to minimize anybody's abuse or anybody's trauma and like all the systems that have failed these guys. You can call someone a martial arts enthusiast without minimizing <laughs> their trauma. <laughs> But like, I don't know, there is something about like the way that American culture creates men like this with like these weird fantasies of like taking justice into their own hands and this weird obsession with violence. Mm -hmm. They've been like very profoundly failed by society, but then they sort of repeat that pattern by trying to strike back by coming up with their own weird little schemes. Yeah. And this is absolutely that kind of masculinity. What Derek Smith tells his nephew Shane is that they have been offered a job where they're going to, quote, take down a skater. Okay. His nephew Shane says, well, I won't cut anyone's Achilles tendon because that's still on the table. Mm-hmm. But for $2,500, I will break her leg or whatever. Okay. So once again, I just, I, it just feels important to restate $2,500. Yeah, you my know? God. And this is like, they don't know these people. They have no reason to take this job. They don't seem to be in like significant financial hardship at this moment. Right. It's like, it feels like it's the glamour of it. And that this is like kind of fulfilling a dream for them to be able to 
Go to a strange city and assault someone. Yeah. For not very much money. God, I knew guys like this in community college. That's maybe another mesmerizing aspect of this crime as the details come out, that there's so many guys like this who who would be drawn to doing this kind of job because it feels like it would allow them to play a role in a fantasy they have about themselves. Totally. That involves hurting someone. Yeah, yeah. Which is weird. So the plan they come up with is Derek is going to hit Nancy in the kneecap with no mask on? And then just run away? Like, that's the whole plan? They run through a lot of different plans. Oh, my God. And actually, Shane is the one who hits Nancy, and Derek is the getaway car driver who has to, like, follow behind him for a while. Okay. So Jeff later says that he has Tanya call around to find out where Nancy trains and what her rank is called. Interesting. Which is the Tony Cantorina. Mm-hmm. In Massachusetts, which Tanya allegedly writes down as Toonie Can Arena on a scrap of paper that got found in a dumpster outside the Dockside Restaurant, a venerable outer Portland institution, which is later okay. used to tie Tanya to the case. It's one of the smoking guns. So they find out where she practices. And also all four men have a planning meeting which Sean Eckhart tapes <laughs> at which... He says, wouldn't it be easier just to kill her? Oh, my God. And suggests that they get a sniper to kill Nancy. Oh, because they're very competent. So that will go off without a hitch. Yeah. One of them has sniping skills. Yeah. And once again, to quote Fire on Ice, Galuli told Sean to leave murder out of it. Talk about killing made him uncomfortable. Sure. So good for Jeff. Drawing the line at murder. Very important when you're working with guys like these who seem capable of willing a lot of fantastical things into life. That's the whole thing. It's like the fantasy of like doing this big, like Mission Impossible type scheme is like part of the fun. Like you mentioned a bunch of episodes ago how like people like planning things and talking about fantasies. Like I'm going to go to Acapulco and I'm going to open a restaurant. It's fun to just talk about stuff, even if Mm -hmm. you kind of know in the back of your head that it's not going to happen. Yeah. And it's just, you know, this is like something that would give your life meaning, right? Yeah. Everyone has boring jobs. Everyone is like kind of a loser in some ways. This is like something where if it gets pulled off and Sean especially seems to have been focused on this aspect of it. If you pull it off, then like you're on the news. You're part of a story that all Americans are going to are going to know about something that you've done. That's part of the appeal. Yeah, because they're going to know about a bad thing that you did and then you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> it just seems like they haven't thought it through. He, I think he felt that he wasn't going to get in trouble, even though also, by the way, his mom knows about all of the details of what's no going way. on. Sean Eckhart's mom. Yeah. Wow. Like everyone's like, why didn't Tanya come forward? And it's like, why didn't Sean Eckhart's mom <laughs> yeah. come forward? Why didn't Agnes Eckhart talk to the police? So Shane Stant flies to Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to read to you. Upon arrival, Stant checked into a hotel near Logan International Airport using a credit card and registering under his own name. He discovered that the credit card he shared with his girlfriend couldn't be used to rent a car. So he had to wait a day for his own card to arrive from Phoenix. On December 31st, the next day, Stant found the Tony Cantarina in the resort town of South Dennis on Cape Cod. Mm-hmm. For two days, he parked outside the arena, moving his car every 30 minutes, Whoa. but always keeping an eye on the front door. On January 3rd, Stant called the rink and asked about Nancy Kerrigan and whether she would be skating soon. He claimed to have a daughter who wanted to see Kerrigan skate. The woman told him Kerrigan had left for the national championships. Stant drove back to Boston, returned his rental car, and took a cab to the train station, where he learned that no trains were going to Detroit. (laughs) 
It's like every mistake that he could possibly make, he makes it. I really identify with this guy. <laughs> That's how I feel whenever I go to the post office. His money getting low, he took a cab to the Greyhound bus station and bought a $125 ticket to Detroit. The 25-hour trip would bring him to Detroit late January 4th. Stant checked into a Super 8 motel, registering in his own name and paying $101.76 for three nights. Those were the days, right? Yeah. He asked for a waterbed and paid $10.39 for a video player <laughs> and two adult movies, Hollywood Fantasies and The Girls of Beverly Hills. Okay. Once in his room, Stant called Smith, who had in the meantime returned to Phoenix. God. I mean, you'd think that, like, at some point, they would just say that, like, at every level, we have failed to plan this so far. So, like, it's unlikely. Like, maybe not. Like, maybe let's just not do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's, like, regroup and think about this and try to assault someone next year. Right. Or see if we even still want to. Maybe we'll all be really into paintballing a year yeah. from now. <laughs> I also like to think about the fact that Shane Stant spent three days, three days, Michael, on Cape Cod, moving his car every 30 minutes, <laughs> waiting for Nancy Kerrigan. And it took him three days to call the rank. I know. It seems like if you're struggling to rent a car, yeah. like maybe yeah. hitting a professional figure skater in the kneecaps and getting away with it, like is maybe outside of your realm of expertise. Like, let's focus on like going to a place renting a car, making sure someone is in the location that we think they're into. Like, let's master that. Although, to be fair, witnesses still described him as a delicate featured black woman. (laughs) (laughs) He came surprisingly close. And there's also a plan initially. One of the things they're talking about is like, what if we rush Nancy in her hotel room and duct tape her wrists and assault her you know, in her room and then leave her there tied up, which would be way more traumatic. I mean, I was going to say it's a way better plan than the one they came up with, but also it would have been more traumatic. Yes. Yeah. They would have been less, maybe less likely to be caught. Yeah. So, but they went with the lower impact, stupider thing. Yes. (laughs) That's nice. (laughs) Meanwhile, according to Jeff, Jeff and Tanya are sitting in Portland, like, okay, like when is this thing going to happen that Mm -hmm. Sean said was going to happen? And Sean makes up all sorts of stories about what's going on to, I don't know, buy time for himself. So he says that the hitman broke into Nancy's car outside of a 7-Eleven and got her address off of her registration. And then when she came out of the 7-Eleven, they stole the car. And then he said that they hid in her house on New Year's Eve, but she didn't go home. And like... (laughs) All this like ridiculous kind of farcical stuff that they're supposed to be getting into. I'm getting like weird sympathy with Jeff of like supervising staff who are just totally incompetent. (laughs) Right. Like you hire someone to do a relatively simple job and he's like, oh man, you wouldn't believe. And it's like, could he just like, just do the thing I hired you to do. Right. I don't don't need you to steal her car at 7-Eleven. I need you to do this one thing. Have you done the (laughs) one thing yet? But then, finally, they're in Detroit. Nancy's practicing. Shane wanders in looking suspicious AF. And (laughs) nobody notices or cares because there's no security (laughs) hanging around. (laughs) And he watches Nancy skate and waits for her to come off of the ice. And then clubs her on the leg with his police baton and Mm -hmm. runs headfirst through the plexiglass doors. (laughs) And into history. 
or out of history or something. So that's the planning. And then it, it's it's kind of like the story of like an early plane that like took a really long time to take off and then crashed disastrously and got like six seconds in the air. It's like, right. And then it gets some clearance and then it like takes everybody down. What is the investigation? Like, how do people come across this? Like, is it is it that Jeff confesses? Like, how do, how do the cops finally start unraveling this? No, I mean, it, <laughs> there are immediately leaks. So one thing is that a woman who I believe Sean's dad had been having phone sex with. Okay. It was the 90s. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. So this woman who learned about the plot, which was apparently discussed freely in the Eckhart family home. <laughs> Sends an anonymous letter to Coin TV, which is one of the major network affiliates in Portland. She also sends a copy to the Detroit police. Okay. Which is, I believe, how they learn that there is a Derek involved and know okay. to ask Jeff about it. And Sean is taking a community college class. Okay. And he has a classmate who's like kind of a, a shy guy i think he's a student pastor mm-hmm. and sean is like do you want to hear this tape of the planning of, of a hit that i carried out and the guy is like okay and sean plays him the tape that he made of the planning meeting with jeff what? and the hitmen yes he pl- and the guy is like well it's kind of garbled they can't really hear it and sean's like well here's what it's about so he's like immediately starts implicating himself at the first available he like cannot stop himself from bragging there's like a very good lesson here for if you need to hire people to do crimes for you that like (laughs) people who want to do crimes because they seem cool will tell everybody about them because they're like look how cool i am right you want someone like robert de niro and heat who's like cursed by how good they are at crime (laughs) and they don't even want to be good at crimes but they are So basically, immediately everybody just starts telling anyone who will listen, yes. like, we committed this crime that is, like, already on the news, presumably. Yeah, Sean immediately starts blabbing about it, and the Detroit police question Tanya and Jeff, and Jeff says, oh, Sean Eckhart is my wife's bodyguard, and I have all these, these I have, here's a card for his bodyguard services company, because I have lots right now. Of course. <laughs> and they're the most obvious people to suspect. Yeah. And pretty quickly evidence starts to to turn up. Okay. So the FBI questions Jeff in Detroit before Jeff and Tanya go home to Portland after nationals. And they also question Tanya. And Tanya signs a statement for the FBI saying that she had no knowledge of the attack on Nancy. Okay. And they go home. And of course, the media is a swarm. Right. Because this is when it becomes a thing, right? Right. Well, this so this is she's going back to Portland on January 10th, which is four okay. days afterward. Right. And so, yeah, this is when the media is there at the airport to, like, meet her and get footage of her and talk right. to her. And, yeah, the press is on her in a way that they haven't been before. Right. And so the Oregonian gets in touch with Sean Eckhart because they find out from a source about the tape that he has played for a classmate. <laughs> <laughs> and they phone him and ask him for an interview. And he's like, sure, I'd be happy to talk about my counterterrorism work. Uh, and then meets with Oregonian reporters at a restaurant. And they, like, talk to him about his espionage and World Bodyguard services for a while. And then slide into uh, asking him about Nancy Kerrigan. Oh, my God. It's so easy. Yeah. The FBI shows up in Portland and talks to Sean. And then after that, Sean and Jeff get together at a pancake house Mm -hmm. and work on getting their stories straight. 
And Jeff doesn't say much because he believes that Sean is secretly taping the conversation, which he has a reason to think. Mm -hmm. So by the end of January 11th, five days after the assault, Derek Smith has confessed to assaulting Nancy Kerrigan. Holy shit. The next day, Sean Eckhart and Derek Smith are arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit second degree assault. Okay. And on January 14th, Shane Stant turns himself in to the FBI in Phoenix. And on January 18th, a warrant is issued for Jeff's arrest. Wow. And the Olympics is in one month. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they cracked this case really fast. Yeah, because everybody immediately starts implicating themselves in each other. And they made so many mistakes while committing the crime itself. And it's like everyone experiences the least bit of pressure and immediately turns on each other. Wow. I mean, if they watched Goodfellas too many times, they also didn't watch it carefully enough. Because, <laughs> like, what's the main lesson of Goodfellas for at least the first two hours? <laughs> Don't rat on your friends. This is my theory with all of those movies is that everybody rewatches them, but nobody watches the final third. Yeah, I think that is true. No one watches the part where your wife gets a shag haircut and, yeah. and you get all paranoid and then you go to jail. Exactly. It's like not putting in the second tape of Titanic. You're like, and then Henry Hill <laughs> stayed high and had three mysteries. <laughs> is forever. End of movie. Yes. Tanya Harding at this time is showing up in People magazine. The press is staking out her home. She's being followed everywhere. This is when she wears that great sweatshirt that says no comment. Oh, yeah. Like she is suddenly receiving just an incredible amount of attention, like mm-hmm. a degree of attention that would be overwhelming and mess with your head no matter what it was for. I remember that description from your article of her trying to practice skating at this time. And there's like hundreds of cameras around her and she just can't do it. Yeah. And just and her every move is being watched. And it's like she's, you know, in an interrogation room, basically. Right. She's trying to practice her sport. Right. So Tanya tells the press on January 11th, she maintains that she had no idea she, that she knows nothing, essentially, you know, mm-hmm. in the days immediately following. And then after that, she is interviewed again by the FBI and they talk to her for 10 and a half hours. Oh, wow. And then the agents tell her that they believe she's lying and that lying to a federal agent is a crime. And so she goes and talks to her lawyers and then comes back and confesses to the FBI to knowing after the fact that Jeff had orchestrated an assault on Nancy Kerrigan, but had not come to them with her knowledge because she was afraid of him. And that's the degree of involvement that she confesses to. How do you feel about this? I mean, the way I feel about it is, A, I think her claim that she didn't know about it until after it had already happened and that she hadn't come forward because she was afraid of Jeff is completely plausible. Mm -hmm. And I also think that if she did know in advance... Like, if Jeff's story about all that is true, that he was like, Sean and I are going to keep Nancy from competing. And she was like, okay. But, like, wasn't part of the planning, wasn't part of the orchestration, was kind of minimally involved in the whole thing. Then, Mm -hmm. like, I understand that, too. Like, I can understand her behaving in that way. And Mm -hmm. it's and this is what it comes down to in all of these cases is like this idea that I, as an apologist for someone, have to successfully argue that they're they're innocent and they never did anything wrong mm-hmm. and that's what allows me to say like maybe we shouldn't keep making blood sport of this person for 25 years like that's mm-hmm. the argument that's supposed to make us question this abusive cycle of media and public attention mm-hmm. and what i what i really think is that like the evidence against her is really flimsy the case against her is her being implicated by a co-defendant pretty much there's like mm-hmm. stuff like 
you know, someone having written Toonie Can Arena and the handwriting expert saying that looks like her handwriting. Right. Mm -hmm. So like there, there's stuff there, but really it's Jeff's story. And like, why is Jeff so credible a person right. in this scenario? Right. You know, I think the evidence against her is like, doesn't really prove much of anything. I think her story is as plausible as Jeff's. Mm -hmm. But also, I think that even if she did everything Jeff said she did, like that still doesn't mean that we had the right to treat her the way that we did and the way that we right. have in, right. the, in the 25 years since. So I feel like, you know, when I wrote that piece and like what I was arguing to people individually in bars is, you know, we treated her terribly and we acted like she had done something that was utterly indefensible, like morally inexcusable, unimaginably conniving and evil. And so we had the right to use her for our entertainment and use her abuse at the hands of the public and the media as our entertainment because she had done something terrible. And so it was fine. Mm. My thinking is that, A, what she did in, in the scheme of things was was not that terrible. And if we're taking Jeff's version, kind of the darkest possible version of her involvement as the truth, like that degree of involvement is not that awful. And B, that I can understand why she would why she would make any of those decisions if they were decisions that she had made. Like if she truly felt that like she could not be taken seriously as the athlete that she was for as long as this person who embodied everything that she wasn't and never could be was the person that she had to compete against, if that was how she felt. And if she also was driven by this need to prove that, you know, she deserved love, she deserved to be treated like a human being because she could still do this amazing thing and could still be part of her sport in the way that she was before when she had like once briefly been treated by the world as if she mattered, if she was willing mm -hmm. to do something desperate or not even do something desperate, but allow something desperate and awful to be done on her own behalf to get that back and believe that that was the only choice available to her. Like, I can't fault her for that either. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Maybe this is because I've been interviewing sex offenders all week. <laughs> but it's difficult to talk about another person, especially a person who has committed a crime, without falling into the category of I am defending them or I am condemning them. Right. It's very difficult to talk factually about it's not clear what Tanya knew, when she knew it. It seems to be quite well established that there was abuse in the relationship. We have documents showing that she's filed for a restraining order. We have calls to 911. Within that relationship, within all of that complexity, she may have done something indefensible yeah. She may have done something slightly less indefensible, but it's like, it's difficult to talk about these things of like, here's all of the information that I'm giving you. It's not necessarily saying she's a good person or she is complete trash. It is just, she's a person. Mm -hmm. Is that what you mean? Yeah. I mean, I think we just need to let her be human again. And I think that the kind of tunnel vision that we have about all this is also informed by the fact that like America was taking such great fucking joy in January and February of 1994 and mocking Tanya Harding. It is remarkable. I mean, it is like I remember that very specifically how like ruthless it was. Yeah. And like what like why? What was that about? Like was yeah. it just did we feel like she was just the ultimate bad decision maker in America that like no one could be as mesmerizingly out of control as she was and she made, it, made us all feel better by comparison like what was that? What do you think? I, I know that there was also a tremendous sense of anticipation going into the Olympics because what happened was that Tanya confessed to the FBI. Tanya 
held a press conference, which was broadcast live in, in Portland oh. Hooray! and led national news broadcasts that day, basically tearfully confessing to having knowledge after the fact of the assault mm. on Nancy and saying, you know, I want to compete for my country. I haven't done anything to violate the expectations of, of sportsmanship that the Olympics mm-hmm. wants. I know some people can't forgive me for this, but, you know, I, I confess this is what I've done. And she was barred from competing. And then she, her coach's husband was a lawyer, so she had access to legal help through that. And mm-hmm. so she sued the Olympics to allow her to compete. And so she was allowed to. Oh, so that's how she ended up competing? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. She, oh. had, to, she had to fight back. Wow. And to be fair, like no one fought that hard to keep her out of contention. Mm-hmm. And the, the point is raised in Itania that perhaps, you know, everyone knew what kind of a ratings bonanza this would be. Right. The 94 Olympics are bananas. I remember this. Which everyone kind of knew would be the case going in. Yeah. Like one thing that actually happened in figure skating that season well before the scandal was that skaters who had gone professional were allowed to regain their amateur status and qualify for the Olympics if they wanted to, which had never happened before. Oh. So all of these previous Olympic champions who had gone pro came and were back in the game. Oh, so it was a circus for other reasons. Yeah, it was already a circus. And then <laughs> to quote Fire on Ice, everyone is trying to get a piece of Tanya. Reporters rushed to the airport in Chicago in the hope that she might be changing flights there. There were rumors that she would talk to 60 Minutes or to Diane Sawyer or to Barbara Walters. But Harding remained as remote as Garbo. I don't know who that is, but okay. Greta Garbo. (laughs) I'm using context clues. Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay. And there's this idea that I think we have in the 90s that maybe now we're disabused of because fame has been so democratized. But this idea that if people pay attention to you, that that's power that you can use. Like the fact that all these people want to talk to Tanya and the fact that she's not talking to any of them means that she has the upper hand somehow. Right. Rather than like all of her endorsements would have dried up at this point. She has no income. Mm -hmm. She's still married to this dude who sucks. Well, they're divorced, actually. But she's still domestically linked to this dude who sucks. Yeah. And then she announces before she heads to the Olympics that she and Jeff are going to separate. Okay. And then she gets to the Olympics and finds out that Jeff has sold their wedding night video to Penthouse. Their wedding? Like them having sex? There's a sex tape of Tanya Harding? Yeah. What? Yes. Oh, I had no idea. Okay. You were not reading enough Penthouse in 1994, young man. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, there is. And it's a video that Tanya says she didn't know Jeff was making. He like set up a camcorder and filmed them on their wedding night. When she was 19. Which is like such a fucking rapey thing to do. Uh-huh. We have a term for this now. It's called revenge porn. Like that's yes. literally what he does. He takes footage of her having sex without her consent and then sells it to Penthouse after she announces her separation from him. <sighs> have you watched it? Yes. What, what's it like? It's clearly a video taken without someone's consent. Is it really? Well, okay, parts of it. Because there's part of it. That has oral sex. It has Tanya performing oral sex on Jeff, which also Mm -hmm. like, you know, as we discussed in our Monica Lewinsky episodes, women are not allowed to be known to do in the 1990s. Of course. There's only like four different sex things you can do. And we have to load like three of them with weird baggage. And one of them is murder. (laughs) (laughs) Because straight people express themselves through sex crimes and... 
you know, if you're a woman and you have given oral sex to a man, then like that's it. You know, your life is over. Yeah. Right. It's just it's amazing. The idea that you can be blackmailed with something that everyone does. So like literally everyone does. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Not literally everyone, but very close to literally everyone. Certainly higher than our vaccination rates, I would argue. <laughs> um, and so Tanya finds out that the sale is going to go through with or without her consent. And so she agrees so that she can get some money off of this video of herself being sold. Oh, yeah. That's what Pam Anderson did, too. It's like, you know, it's going to leak anyway. So you might as well get 30 bucks a pop for it. Yeah. And, you know, part of the video is something that Tanya didn't know was being taken at the time, which is Jeff filming her as she gets undressed and acts sexy for him. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's him telling her that she's beautiful as she shows him her like beautiful muscular body. And it's like some of the like tenderness in the marriage, you know, what Mm -hmm. it was is being sold and profited off of too. Mm. And she's competing at the Olympics. Right. Like imagine that you wake up and your abusive ex has sold porn of you that you didn't know he was taking the footage at that time and you have to Mm -hmm. sort that out and then you have the olympics like yeah the number of unthink like no one has experienced what she's experienced right right yeah it's weird it's like her career her finances and her personal life are all in crisis at the same time yeah like what was happening in her horoscope yeah (laughs) so she gets the olympics and The first day that she and Nancy are on the ice together practicing is this like absolute, I mean, the footage of this is incredible because this is the first time that they have been in the same frame as each other. No, I remember this footage. It's so stressful. Can you describe it? It's like them sort of circling around each other in a way that like I think is probably super normal for practice sessions. Oh, yeah, because there's a lot of people in the rink at once and you need your own space and you're not going to be skating right next to anybody. But everyone is looking at it like Talmudic scholars to find like any little shred of meaning, any eye contact, like you just know it's going to be a media story. So it's like you have to blow it up into this huge thing, even though the footage itself, if you watch it in any, any other context, you just be like, that's two ladies skating. I don't remember them having right. any actual interaction in that footage. No, they didn't interact in that footage. They didn't interact where any cameras could see them ever during the Olympics. And I think there is this idea that like people wanted them to fight. Yeah. And the ladies short program, because there's a short program and a free program. The short program was watched by 45 million people. Jesus Christ. That made it at the time the fifth most watched TV broadcast ever. God, that and like Roots were the only thing that America stopped what they were doing to watch. It was like Tanya Harding and Alan Alda on MASH. And like here you are and you're just this woman from Clackamas (laughs) County who just wants to be paid a living wage for (laughs) this sport that you practice at an elite level. And you have this like terrible marriage that... You don't know how to, like, end or get out of, and suddenly you are as well-known to Americans as Geraldo. Like, how? It was just such a silly time. I remember watching that with my parents. It was a huge—I mean, there was all this anticipation of it. I kind of remember the event itself because Nancy did well, right? Nancy did great. And then Tanya had to, like— her skate was too tight. She had to like stop in the middle of well, it. Well, that was in the long program. The long program was where it got interesting. In the okay. short program, Nancy skated really well. Tanya finished in 10th place after skating mm-hmm. to the Much Ado About Nothing soundtrack. Okay. And then in the free program, that was where Tanya had the famous trouble with her skate lace, where she right. had been in practice. She had 
broken a lace. They hadn't had a spare. Mm -hmm. And she replaced it with a shorter lace and was trying to get the skate ready to go out with. And like they were calling her name and it looked like she was going to have to forfeit her spot. And she got out with like seconds to spare and then started skating and popped her first jump and started crying and went over to the judges' table to show them her skate, which is what you're supposed to do, by the way. If any of your equipment oh, yeah. doesn't work as a skater, you're supposed to go over to the judges and show it to them. But of okay. course, it's this famous image of like her with her skate up on the table, and she's crying and pointing at it. Yeah. And she, you know, just like Nancy had six weeks earlier, she just looks like a kid who's like been holding it together yeah. during like a long day at the fair. And finally, right. it's just like... It's too much. And so they give her time to fix it, you know, better than it is fixed to do what she can. And so she goes off and gets it fixed and composes herself to really an amazing degree and skates well, like not perfectly, but she skates mm -hmm. and she pulls up her standings and she finishes the Olympics in eighth place. Wow. And Nancy skates an incredible program. Like I cannot overstate the beauty of her free skate at that Olympics. She skates mm -hmm. the music it's a Neil Diamond medley, and it starts off with the music of Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Okay. I have not read or seen Jonathan Livingston Seagull, but I understand that it's about a seagull. <laughs> and it's like a seagull who can fly higher than all the other seagulls, but then like something goes wrong, but then he flies even higher somehow, I think. The part of the music <laughs> that Nancy is skating to... <laughs> Stop laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Just because I'm saying the word seagull so many times. The part of the music that Nancy starts skating to in that program is when Jonathan Livingston Seagull is all like battered and has had just like a really bad time. Mm -hmm. Maybe he's not going to make it. And he's like, no, I must fly. It's the triumph of the, you know, human seagull. Mm -hmm. So it's, just, it's like this beautiful performance by Nancy, which was never choreographed to be about overcoming, you know, an injury. It was supposed to be about overcoming just the whole what her career has been for the past couple of years. Right. And she skates beautifully and she's more consistent than maybe she's ever been. And she finished in second place to okay. Oksana Bayul. Oh, right. Who was a teeny tiny teenager. Yeah. And it was very controversial at the time. Why? What? Okay. So one of the issues in figure skating scoring, there was no instant replay. Oh. And so Oksana Bayul had made an error. I believe she two-footed a jump landing when she was kind of at the opposite end of the rink from the judges. And one of the judges didn't mark the error because they didn't see it. Oh, okay. On top of that... Oksana Bayola and Nancy Kerrigan's scores were mathematically identical, mm -hmm. but because of the way the system works, the winner is the person with the highest artistic score. Oh. And that was Oksana. So the Electoral College gave it to Oksana. The Electoral College gave it to Oksana Bayola. And it was the same kind of Tanya Nancy paradox of like, how do you score two different but equally good yeah. performances from two different yet equally skilled skaters? Right. And it replicated there. And Nancy, <laughs> while standing on the podium waiting to get their medals, they were apparently waiting for a long time because no one could find the Ukrainian national anthem because no one <gasps> thought that Oksana Bayul would win because everyone was distracted by something. Right. And so while they were waiting, mm -hmm. Kerrigan was caught saying... <laughs> She thought that someone had told her that they were doing Oksana Bayol's makeup. And she was like, why bother? She'll just cry it off anyway. Oh. Which was the first little ripple of like, oh, my God, Nancy Kerrigan has a personality. This is terrible. 
Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they were like, is Nancy like capable of not being super nice after losing a lifelong dream? Like, that's not acceptable. Oh, man. And then she was on a float at Disney World, which she skipped the Olympic closing ceremonies to do a contractually obligated Disney World event. And she was on a float and was again caught by a mic saying to someone in a Mickey Mouse costume, this is the corniest thing I've ever done. (laughs) (laughs) Although that's accurate. So that seems fine to me. Once again, yeah. It's like, wouldn't you like her less if she didn't complain about being on a Disney World float? Yeah, that sounds miserable. Although being in the closing ceremonies also sounds miserable. Yeah. But I want to close my Nancy you're wrong about with something that happened many years after all this. Okay. Nancy has two brothers. One of them is named Mark. And in the years following the scandal and their family being in the news, Mark serves two years for assaulting his wife, Janet, who also gets a restraining order against him. Mm -hmm. And there's one incident where Mark chokes Janet during an argument. She escapes by jumping out the window, calls the police, and the police come and find Mark holding a hunting knife in each hand saying, come on, kill me. I want to die. Whoa. And after this all happens, after he goes to prison and is released, the Kerrigan family has supported him through this whole thing. And he is living with his parents in 2010 Mm -hmm. when he gets in an altercation with his father when the father won't let him use the family phone. And he chokes him the same way he had his wife. Holy shit. And while he's choking his father, Dan Kerrigan goes into cardiac arrest and dies. And oh my God. Mark is charged with manslaughter and assault and battery on an elderly person. Wow. And convicted of the latter and serves a year. Jesus. One of the things that I've thought about since then is how much of this was present in the Kerrigan home when they were the subject of so much media attention. And mm. did Mark have anger issues or behave violently when he was younger or when he was in the home with Nancy? And Mm. was it not that, you know, there was this girl with a perfect, or if not perfect, then at least totally healthy and stable home life and the girl who was living in chaos? Things were difficult for both of them, but one family could keep their, what Tiny called rough edges, out of the public view and one couldn't. Hmm. What do you think about that? So it's like two women that potentially could have been really close and like could have helped each other or bonded or offered support in some way. But the whole structure in which they came into contact with each other made that impossible. (sighs) Yeah, like two women who were working in a structure that didn't have any space for the realities of their lives. And Mm -hmm. one could, you know, keep her chin up and you know, make it work financially and stay out of the news and also bear her trauma in a way that allowed her to behave in the ways expected and desired of her. Mm -hmm. And you're kept isolated if it's all about make it work. Don't need special treatment. Don't need help. Right. So what happened to Tanya afterwards? Oh, I mean, her life was, you know, destroyed by this. She was stripped of her national title. She was barred forever from competing in in amateur figure skating and also unofficially barred from, you know, ice shows and that kind of thing. She taught figure skating for a long time. She stayed Mm -hmm. in shape and like kept herself trained and and skated on her own time for years after this happened, waiting to be asked back and waiting to be able to skate again and married another guy after Jeff, who was also abusive. And Mm. she got out of that marriage fast 
and is now married to a guy who it seems like she's had no trouble with and has a son. Okay. Which leads us to the kind of <laughs> restorative justice of Aitania, which is an interesting movie because it doesn't tell her story to the degree of detail that we have about her. It doesn't talk mm-hmm. about the degree of abuse that she claimed happened to her. And it mm-hmm. shows her as someone who is given more of a chance to talk back to the skating powers that be that she thinks she had in real life. Like, there's a scene mm-hmm. in that movie where Tanya Harding shouts, suck my dick at a panel of judges, which like, oh, my God, no one <laughs> has ever in the history of the sport done anything like that. Like, wow. that would be like stopping your program short in the middle because you fell on a jump and like, you know, just skating away. Like no one's right. ever done that either. Right. Things that are within like the normal boundaries of human histrionics are just like it's a sport. Like if you behave like that once, then like the repercussions for you could be. Maybe the end of your career. Who knows? Nobody knows. Yeah. And so I feel like what's interesting about that movie is that, like, I personally have my own, like, I am a scholar of film issues with it. (laughs) And yet at the same time, Tanya Harding loves that movie. And she was played by Margot Robbie, one of the most beautiful ladies in the whole world, who then was nominated for an Oscar for playing her. And then Tanya went to the Golden Globes and Sharon Stone gave her advice on how to feel like calm when there's people taking her picture. And then Tanya got to be on Dancing with the Stars. And now she has all of this reality TV work because... Her legacy has changed and people are now willing to adopt her as like a a maligned figure and someone who didn't deserve the way that she was treated. Right. And I feel like we can't have a major social movement that, which I'm calling this a major social movement, I guess. (laughs) We can't have a major social movement that doesn't overly simplify some things. And I think that the main thing that I I didn't see in Itania that I feel like is part of her story and to me an important part of her story is that like she wasn't always funky and cute and able to stick up for herself and someone who is easy to see yourself as. You know, she wasn't always just this funky outsider. Mm-hmm. She's someone whose whose life bore the scars of the abuse that she had suffered. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of little sections in, you know, media covering her at the time and in, in the Oregonians reporting on her about how she would like her fan club would raise a thousand dollars for her to go to this Olympic training camp and then she wouldn't go, but she'd keep the money and like, oh, so villainous. Oh. And it's like so she was like maybe kind of unreliable and overwhelmed and mm-hmm immature and difficult and and a complicated Mm -hmm. person and like we deserve to see that too like we deserve to have the chance to see that having a lifetime of lovelessness and abuse can make someone difficult to love and yet it's still worth learning to love them and to meet them on their own terms and they can also make bad choices i mean we've seen this in so many of the stories that we've covered on this show that like amy fisher made bad choices and monica Lewinsky made bad choices and tanya harding did too And, like, that doesn't make them less of a person. Yeah. And it doesn't take away from the fact that we can still empathize with them. It's not – we don't have to put them in this little box of, like, she's this hero that we all revere or, like, she's this hussy who we all destroy. It's, like, it's okay for them to have some flaws and some character and do some kind of dumb shit because everyone does dumb shit and that's okay. Yeah. It's okay for her to have rough edges. It's okay for her to be more complicated than than maybe we want her to be. Right. But, you know, what I find great in all this is that, like, Tanya Harding has gotten some reparations. American media, right. the same force that once destroyed her life and, like, lifted her house away and carried her up to Oz, 
was like, what if you were played by the most beautiful, sexy, <laughs> special lady in the world and everyone realized they were assholes? This is what she deserves. And also right. like lots of money and, and anyone who profited off her story, looking her in the eye and apologizing to her. Right. I think what's like almost most haunting to me is that is like the money thing hmm. that like, I mean, as we saw with, you know, every other time we cover a story with the same sort of basic architecture, it is that everyone gets rich but her. Yeah. It's like she's the gold mine and they're the miners. Yeah. And then people write books about it that become bestsellers and people do documentaries on it on which they sell ads for Halliburton. And then some bitch writes a lyric essay about it and bases her <laughs> whole career on that and sits in a closet obsessing over it. I mean, we talk about, you know, people making bad decisions, but you think about the way that rich kids' bad decisions get papered over and oh, they get yeah. compensated for and they get explained away in a way that poor people's bad decisions never do. I mean, just also what gets me is, is the feeling that people seem to have at the time that like we needed to find some way to ignore the fact that we were just destroying this person who life had already almost destroyed already and right. doing it just because it amused us. You know, like we needed to believe that she was somehow subhuman so that we could still have our fun. You know what's interesting to me is... I wonder if there was something in journalism at the time, too, that, like, nobody wanted to write the article that was like, hey, let's all slow down. Tanya Harding has, like, a long history of abuse. She's a complicated person. Yeah, why didn't anyone say that? The incentives in media are sort of like... You can't defend a person like that once the pile-on has begun. Well, I've read a lot of coverage of this from the time, and there will be, like, an opinion piece or something somewhere in a newspaper and, you know, during the scandal that's like, when I learned about Tanya Harding working at Spud City, I suddenly felt bad for her, you know? But it's like, it's this rare, not very forceful voice of dissent. It's n there's There right. was never, like, a militant voice. It was always like, actually, maybe... She's not terrible. Right. I was thinking about the role of editors and the role of gatekeepers in these things, too, that at the time there would have been like some finite number of newspapers, some finite number of websites. You know, if 75 people in the country, all of whom are editors, decide this isn't an opinion worth hearing, no one would hear that opinion. Yeah. Like it wasn't that big of a group of people who could just banish an opinion from polite yeah. discourse. Mm. And so – the fact that most of the media at the time was being run by men, mm. most of whom didn't have a like gut level, my heart goes out to her kind of reaction. We didn't think of that as distorting at the time. We didn't think no. of that as like a special interest group. We just thought of that as like, oh, it's just editors. Editors do what editors do. But you look back on it now and you're like, well, there were a lot of people who decided what we heard and what we didn't hear about Tanya. Yeah. And like those were decisions. Like that was not inevitable. Those were individuals who made those decisions. Honestly, the more I think about it at this moment, I feel like we can trace so much of it back to profit. Yeah. Because if you're running a news magazine show, which was a thing we had in the 90s, and you can choose between producing a segment that's like piling on Tanya. Right. Because it was like anyone who had ever met her was getting interviewed. Like the media yeah. descended on Portland in a way that we talked about for years. Yeah, so people probably came out of the woodwork. Like everyone who worked at that fucking mall yeah. was probably like, I knew Tanya and she kicked me with a skate one day. Because if yeah. you tell a juicy story about Tanya, you'll get in the newspaper. If you tell a boring story about Tanya, like, oh, I never met her. 
Yeah. You're not going to get in the newspaper. So all the incentives are there to make up a bunch of like, yeah. she was clubbing everyone on the knee. Yes. And you're going to have the best odds of being in the paper or on TV or making some money if you can sell something that makes her look bad or implicates her in some yeah. way. Because the highest rates are going to go for the, for the pieces of information confirming the story that the media wants. Yeah. And if you're you know producing a segment for a show, then your job is to go there and find people who can tell you that Tanya is who you think she is, which is a monster. Yeah. You're being paid to believe yeah. that she's a monster. Yeah. And so it just is this little industry for a while. For as long as people want news of how terrible of a person Tanya Harding is, that's what you can get paid to go out and get. That's what gets the most viewers. That's what gets people to change the channel or come in from the kitchen. Right. Everyone knows that hate and sex are two of the great lucrative commodities and primetime TV news in the 90s. And hate is a lot mm. easier to find. Uh, sex is pretty easy to find, too. Eh, but yes. <laughs> eh. Maybe it's easier to inspire someone's hatefulness than to turn them on. Ooh. We're just, we're just spitballing here. But <laughs> the point is, the story that did the most damage to the people in it was the one that made the most money. Yeah. You know, and after the fact, she is assigned, I think, 500 hours of community service. She never serves time. She okay. accepts the lifetime ban from figure skating. You know, the only thing that anyone ever finds her guilty of is hindering the prosecution, which is what she mm. admitted to having done by not having come forward to offer the police or the FBI her knowledge about the assault on Nancy after the fact. Mm -hmm. No one ever convicts her of having had foreknowledge of the event. Right. But it, it doesn't matter. Like in the public eye, she did it. Because right. people don't remember her as having been connected to a plot to take out her rival. People remember her as having been holding the club. Oh, yeah. I know this because I lectured a lot of people about it when I was in grad school. <laughs> I mean, I do think one thing, one thing you said last week that I've been thinking a lot about is how you said that nobody wanted the article because there wasn't anything new in it. You know, you didn't have an interview with Tanya or whatever. And I think that's so interesting in that it's like... Another form of media bias, I think, that is invisible, mm -hmm. the novelty bias, the newness, like if you come back with something and say like, no, I want to write about something that's been there all the time. Yeah, that's like a difficult thing to pitch. And a thing that's like, we don't need to talk to Tanya Harding to know that like we fucked this up because it was mm -hmm. all on the record the whole time. Mm -hmm. That's actually a pretty hard pitch for people to really accept. It is. I know. That's like the main pitch that I do when I pitch things. It's like, what if I talked about that thing that no one noticed when it was happening? Right. Because I am willing to admit that I am bad at noticing things when they are currently happening. Do you think she's read your article? Tanya? Oh, I know that she's read at least part of it <gasps> because I found out after I published it, I think through her manager, that she had read it and had, I believe, quote, some problems with it. Oh, but that's quite interesting. Yeah. When I found that out, I was like, oh, God, what has this all been for? <laughs> yeah. I want to know what she thinks about it so bad. You know, the article I wrote, A, talked about the way she's been talked about historically, which like sucks to read about yourself. Mm -hmm. And B, yeah. it's like it's about her and I didn't talk to her for it because right. I had, you know, tried to reach out to her before and had received word that she didn't want to talk and then didn't push it further. Right. And so then after I, Tanya, came out, I had been asked by a publication to do an interview with Tanya Harding and, and do something. And around the time I was trying to talk to her, she locked down, basically. And I didn't push it very okay. far. So I was like, I don't want to be a person hounding you. You've been hounded enough. Yeah. But I was talking to someone about this recently who was like, do you think you'll ever meet Tanya? And I was like, in my heart of hearts, I believe 
that it wouldn't be for something. It would just be an activity like of her choosing. And I believe that she would really enjoy someday, somehow, somewhere going to a dog sled race. Oh. And I could like drive her there and make cocoa. Wow. So, Tanya, if you are listening, I will take you to a dog sled race or do any activity that you choose to do. I am your humble servant, Sarah Marshall. I thought you were going to say pickleball. Uh, I hope she doesn't want to do something aerobic, but I will. <laughs> she was morning and I was nighttime. I one day woke up to find her lying beside my bed. I softly said, Come take me For I've been lonely In need of someone As though I've done someone wrong somewhere But I don't know where I don't know where